Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, Gordon, good to be here with you. Great to be here. Well, this is Notes from the Field, and we're, I thought it would be fun to talk about this notes thing in a little bit different way to start our show today. Something that all field biologists, any, any student who's ever taken a field course, all of your students, uh, a lot of my students, they know what a field journal is. Yes. Yeah. They sure do. And it's, it's a wonderful tool um, that can be used in a variety of ways. Um, and one of the ways that I've used one over the years um, is just to write down all the critters that I saw that day. Yeah. And so I brought, I brought a couple of, of journals with me. And you also, well, thinking about this historically, you know, the field journals started way before you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, the journals of, of the scientists of the past, these right. field journals are now museum pieces, right. a lot of them. And um, they serve as as really wonderful, tangible reminders of, of epiphanies and of just wonderful experiences in nature. And so this one is, this is my birding journal from 2001. Okay, um, wow. And one of the fun, uh, fun entries here, just to, just to kind of touch on what things you might put in a field journal, if you were to keep a field journal. And some people just have a journal that they write in all the time and, and might, might be more of a diary. There might be some observations of nature. Typically, what I put in is the, is the location. Uh, so this one is 10th of May, 2001. This is Camp Cedar Crest and San Bernardino National Forest in California. I've been there. 10 p.m., clear, waning gibbous moon. And the time is interesting there. Usually, yeah. these are like 6 a.m., 7 a.m. Yeah. So the two, uh, the two big observations that night were a pygmy owl and a spotted owl. Great. Yeah. So uh, kind of fun to look back and remember. Yeah those experiences my field journaling experience i'm not a big field journaler because i'm in the palouse and i see a lot of the same things all the time whether it's plants and so i would feel being very very redundant saying okay i saw ocean spray i saw nine bark i saw a squirrel today i saw a squirrel yeah again i saw a squirrel (laughs) again now what I want to do is, since I already know the flora and fauna in my area that I see every day, I want to just observe yeah. and fine-tune. Now, there are some real serious field journal you know, people that when they're really looking deep and observing at a, at a much deeper level than just the cursory look, they'll journal that too. Right. Animal and, behavior. You know, yeah, and, yeah. And I basically am just loading it up mentally. I think it's great. But I just never was in the habit of journaling. I do journal when I'm doing a big trip, like Riot in the Dance. So yeah. I have a field notebook and we're out there and it's like everything is new. Well, it's new as far as me actually seeing it in the field. Right. So I'll write the date, the time. Okay, we're coming down to the water hole. There is a crash of four uh, white rhinos, you know. And I'm not going to be writing in any eloquent language, just very basic. Here we are. uh, Here's the location and time and the the critter. 
And often, because they're coming at us so fast and furious, not literally, well, the rhino did, but um, <laughs> lots of animals are coming into my, ex that I don't really have time to describe a whole lot other than, okay, I saw a, li a lilac breasted. No, it's like, the, it's like the fire hose. It is. You've seen and so much new biodiversity exactly. simultaneously. And, and I don't know these birds, but yeah. uh, I'm asking the the our guide, you know, what's that? And it, that's the lilac breasted roller. And it's the most gorgeous bird I've ever, I mean, it's beautiful. Crown crane. I just write down crown crane. And these awesome. are just incredible. But I could, it's usually at a distance and I want to just experience the moment. And if I'm scribbling in my notebook, I'm missing looking at. It. Yeah. And I, I know we're only going to spend a little bit of time here. So I'm just absorbing it and sometimes if i can remember okay i'll absorb it look at it enjoy it and then write it down later yep but that takes discipline it does or it takes other eyes to help yeah as we were chatting about earlier when i was uh when i got to take your ornithology class out bird watching yeah we just um we we hollered out all of the birds we saw on the way back in the van and someone made a list that was kind of part of the camaraderie and part of the fun Mm -hmm. um it's funny i got into the habit i think probably during during bird watching and spring migration um, because it was part of the culture a group of college buddies and we were all taking ornithology together and we get out and we just uh we were interested in in seeing what was migrating through today mm -hmm. and so because it was high biodiversity and because it was migration and you might see something today that you didn't see yesterday i think that was that made it compelling and yeah. for some and for some folks it becomes kind of this obsessive hobby yeah. of checking the birds on the list oh yeah it's gr great i i was reading uh tor hansen's book feathers and often you get in this mentality of your bird list so you're with check what is it called your life yeah your life your list. life list yeah and he was somewhere looking at um he was i think in new guinea and he was checking off the different birds of paradise that he'd seen and he saw one, he identified it, check. And then he realized, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but he realized there is so much to looking at this bird than checking it off my list. Right. You know, and so he, he sort of regretted thinking that he had accomplished all by checking it because he, he had a positive ID. He, he missed out on, on savoring it. Uh, the list is made for the man, not the man yeah, for the list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And That's interesting. So, uh, there's that fine balance of really enjoying the moment, and but marking it down, whether it's a photo or a, a, a note in your journal saying, I saw this. And I was often cursory about, you know, my, you know, okay, we just had X number of elephants just walk by. I count, you know, 17 elephants, um, whatever. Uh, and, but then it was a quick note and then I just soak it in. Yeah. Got to, you have yeah. to do that when it's a, and when it's a new experience, especially. It's, yeah. It's, it's great. You know, I, I think, um, really what we're talking about is, is observational natural history mm -hmm. and which you and I are both passionate about. Right. And um, I have my students draw, like, this is where I'm making them do things that I don't. <laughs> um, but they're doing it for a grade and, uh, they, they have to do about one a week for the term and they, 
it try to it tries to cover all the major phyla, sort of a a nice uh, plants and animals, and get a lot of variety there, not just a bunch of reptiles or a bunch of birds, but one from each main category. And they have to uh, spend uh, at least forty five minutes on the drawing, and then they have to write up a hundred word description that the drawing doesn't capture. Because if it's a pencil drawing, it, obviously you don't have color. And so you describe the colors or behavior or both in that, you know, 100-word description. That's great. And so, and some students really, you know, put a lot of effort into it and they turn in this field journal that's just, you know, Rembrandt. I feel like I've got a Leonardo da Vinci sketch pad. Right. Uh, and you know that they're very pleased with it. And when they get their grade, they're even more pleased with it. Yeah. No, that's uh, uh, capturing those details. And you, and you hinted at this can become much more than a cursory observation. It could become an absolute in-depth behavioral study of a certain mm-hmm. creature. Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if you find yourself just talking to, to parents out there and watching your kids' inclinations, if you note that they just love sitting there watching a creature, a field journal is a great gift. And uh, that can just kind of fuel that interest. They're going to see things that, that, uh, that you probably have never seen, and they're going to have a, a new way to uh, kind of record that experience. Yeah, kids can hunker over a, a sidewalk looking at a bunch of ants for a real long time. Yeah. And that patience um, and putting up with the mundane, right? They yeah. see things that we might have seen at one point but forgot about or may have right. never seen. For them, it's exotic because it... Life is new to them, and so seeing a whole column of ants might be just like me seeing a bunch of elephants. Yeah. And we're thinking, oh, that's mundane. Well, it's not to them. The troops are marching. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, you were starting to share a story. I wish I wish we could have kept the microphones, like la- lapeled them or something as we walked out of this booth here last time. Uh, we got to chatting a little bit about the the, the, the one of the most interesting herpetology observations you had. Yeah. And that got us talking about some other stuff too. So maybe yeah. you could just tell that story about sure, this creature. Sure. So was that, were we talking here? Okay. So yeah. you got a little bit of the story that No, I, I think oh, we started chatting after, the, after, after we after left. After we're done. Okay. Yeah. So start so, from the yeah, top. So yeah, I was uh, uh, in central Kenya, part of the safari, and we were just at the lodge and there was this rock wall uh, right near the uh, eating, where, where the people prepped the food for us. It was a rock wall tear, so low end, I mean, low side of the wall, high side of the wall. And um, there are some uh, red-headed agamas, which are a, a common lizard over there. And often the, the males will have real bright coloration, a reddish-orange head, and then a turquoise body. Wow. And that's not just solid. I mean, it's it's got... It's more, lots of cool patterns, but the general coloration is turquoise body, red, reddish orange head. And um, I got my noose out and my son got his camera and filmed me noosing the lizard, which was a a little bit heftier than, say, fencing, uh, sorry, noosing a fence lizard here. Okay. But it it looked a a bit like a fence lizard. And uh, I got it and then held it and then they were you know filming me talking about the lizard as it was in my hands and all of these 
brilliant colors just faded over the course of 10, 15 minutes. Hmm. And it was just a pretty drab lizard. You saw slight hues of orange in the head and maybe a little bit, but it really got drab. And I was just shocked hmm. at the color change. And I shouldn't have been because, you know, I teach herpetology and I, uh, our lizards do change color, but not that quickly and not that drastically, at least in my experience. And it's, it's interesting that just the, some of the detailed science behind it. Yeah. In the skin, you've got the epidermis, uh, which is the top layer of dead. Well, not all of them are dead, but the epidermis, you've got different layers of epidermis and the outermost is, is dead and the innermost is living. And then underneath the epidermis is the dermis, which we call hide. Okay. Like uh, we turn cow dermis into leather. Okay. So that's the dermis. It's underneath the epidermis. Well, in us, our coloration is uh, produced by cells in the epidermis. At the very bottom layer of the epidermis, we've got melanocytes, and which produce melanin to make our coloration. Now, what's interesting with snakes and lizards and also amphibians is their color producing structures are embedded in the dermis. It's very different. Mm. And so, and they're called chromatophores. Chromato means color. A four means bearing, to bear. So a chromatophore means color bearer. Okay. And these are, these are cells in the dermis that specialize in different coloration. And what's interesting is that in the bottom of the dermis, I'm getting technical here and I don't even have a diagram, <laughs> but follow me here. Right. I know it's all audio, but you can follow. You're, you're, you're auditory. Um, at the deepest level of the dermis, you've got melanophores, which produce the dark pigment melanin, which is what we, we do have. We call them melanocytes and we produce melanin. So that gives your hair color, it gives your skin color. And so melanin can be the browns, the blacks. Right. Sometimes you've got some melanins that are red, hmm. but generally browns and blacks. And um, they're at the bottom layer, deepest. And then the next layer up is iridophores. And iridophores uh, have crystals in in their cells that reflect and refract light like prisms. So just like a mirror, the light comes in. If it's white light, it'll reflect white light. Okay. And if you change the angle, that's, this is why they're called iridophores. Sometimes it refracts light like a prism. So if you look at the lizard at a, or a snake, certain ones will refract it so that it makes a rainbow. And depending on the angle that you look at them, it'll be different colors. Yeah. Then we call that iridescence. Right. But often in iridophores, there's just the, the stacked crystals just reflect white light. So it's not really a pigment, but it's just reflecting light. And it may show some iridescence as well. So melan uh, melanophores, bottom, iridophores next. And then xanthophores at the top layer, right underneath the epidermis. And the xanthophores, uh, have colors like uh, keratins, uh, oranges, yellows, reds, things like that, although some uh, melanins are red. So there's a little bit of overlap. But depending on how you, dist uh, the, 
the melanophores will have these snaky cell processes that work their way up into the other ones, into the iridophores, and will, will actually get all the way up to the xanthophores. And depending on how much melanin they put up in these little cell processes, will change the shade of the other colors. Okay. So if you've got oranges or yellows, you can darken them by throwing up more melanin in these processes. And so by changing, and you can actually, under hormonal control, as well as nervous control, change the distribution of the melanin and it's just so, incredible. Yeah, so we've got these, we've got multi layers here beneath the epidermis. What's interesting though, this is great for memorization. Okay. Melanin or melanophores is M, iridophores is I, and xanthophores is X. What's the first letter spell? All right. Mix. Mix. That's, that it's is a good. mix of colors. And so then, and so you, you, um, this, the, the lizard can change its colors even. Um, the nervous system can control how quickly they can distribute the melanin up or down and change the color. And so this is what that lizard was doing. I don't know what the details are, but he had a really bright reddish head and then uh, he darkened it probably with uh, melanin so that you, you, it wasn't that bright, bright red. It was just more dark. And I would assume the melanins came up. Yeah. So, so all of these uh, fours, they're all different types of chromatophores? Yes. Is that correct? All, all three of those are different types of okay. chromatophores. So, we've got three types of chromatophores and we've got some, some kind of reflective material embedded in between. Which is uh, the iridophores. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so, this, so color isn't just pigment, right? Color right. Is also has to do with the refra refraction yes, and reflection that, of light. Yeah, the refraction that iridophores, they call that structural Structural, structural color, color, yeah, rather than pigment uh, color. And so, the uh, looking at this creature, um, holding it for a minute, uh, it revealed that a lot of that color was structural. Yeah, and and that they have control over the palette of colors. That's remarkable. With hormones as well as nervous, and since it happens fast, in some cases, there's going to be some nervous control over. Uh, kind of like octopuses and squid that can change their skin color instantaneously. instantaneously yeah, there's nervous control. And so um, this uh, this lizard, uh, we're all familiar with chameleons. Uh, right. Probably the they're really good. The, yeah, the, the creature that most of us could uh, connect to uh, during this discussion. Um, is there a is there a general principle in if you're an animal behaviorist and you're watching lizards? Uh, is there a rule of thumb regarding the use of that color? How is, oh, good, uh, what is good the purpose question. there? Yeah, well, in chameleons, um, they will have the, the, the technicolor on their skin. They can really be brightly colored. And then often when they're in a bad mood or let's say they're about ready to battle, two males are about ready to battle, their, their skin, as Attenborough puts it once, their skin darkens with their mood <laughs> huh, yeah <laughs> you know and they they start going after each other and they they get dark when i was looking at the fence lizard so you got different reasons for how they ch change color or why they change color uh fence lizards will come out in the morning and it might be pretty chilly 
And when it's chilly, they want to absorb as much heat as possible. So they really uh, move their melanin up in their melanophores Mm -hmm. and the lizard gets really dark and they absorb a lot of solar radiation and heat themselves up much more quickly. And then as they get cooled down um, or like when they, um, they're warmed up enough, then their, their melanin disperses, goes back down and they are not as dark as they were. Gotcha. Interesting. Uh, you know, I think about, um, think about color in birds and this, this transition we see, we, we see a pretty significant transition between breeding season plumage and, and, and winter mm-hmm. plumage or basic plumage. Um, and, uh, the the reasons that the colors change is is not the same for every group of birds, exactly. which same I with, think is same with lizards. Okay, yeah. So what, some is to gain heat, some right? is it for sexual attraction of the yep. mate or whatever. Same with yeah. Birds. Uh, sometimes it's camouflage. Sometimes it's camouflage, and one of the surprising ways that these colors change, and maybe this is true with lizards. I don't know. I look forward to hearing. Um, when birds go from their basic plumage to their breeding plumage, they go from kind of drab to really bright. That actually can occur without molting feathers at all. It comes from feather wear. Yeah. And so feather wear, wearing these feathers down. Through... Kind of like faded jeans. <laughs> right. The yes. stone, stonewashed jeans. Through the use and through these big migrations, those feathers wear down and reveal much more beautiful yeah. colors that's beneath a, that's them. That's really interesting. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing. Most biologists will look at colors and they'll look at, okay, what's the purpose of this coloration? Yeah, they're looking for function. They're looking for function. And there's nothing wrong with that because often there is a function. There's, you know, whether it's sexual attraction, camouflage, all sorts of practical organism-centered reasons for that color. And, but they think it's only that. Right. And this is where a Christian can look at it and go, okay, this is designed. Yes, it's practical to the the bird or the lizard or whatever it is, but it's also marvelous and beautiful. And we forget that when God made a lot of these things, he made it beautiful to be beautiful, not uh, so if we're scratching our head saying there's got to be a selective advantage evolution, you know, from a natural selection perspective, a Darwinist will only see this is in a selective advantage. When I saw some of the birds over in Africa thinking, okay, there's, yes, there's maybe some sexual attraction, all that stuff, but it's also made to be beautiful. Yeah. And the illustration I use for that is. Why do we make chandeliers? Well, there's a practical side to chandelier because they're crystals, uh, whatever they're made of, and they help disperse light. So the bulbs in the center of the chandelier, whatever that's emitting light, they hit all these crystals and disperse it throughout the room. So there's a functionality to the chandelier. But that's not the only purpose of the chandelier. The chandelier is meant to be and created to be not only functional, but beautiful. Yeah. So when we look at plumage, yes, functional. Is it beautiful? Well, the evolutionists would say, incidentally, it happens to be beautiful, but that was just a happy accident. 
but it wasn't purposefully made beautiful. Right. But when I see these uh, lilac-breasted rollers, and you have to look that up. Oh, man. And the uh, superb starling. Ooh. And this is like a common bird, like a robin over there. And it was just like, knock your socks off. Yeah. It was meant to be beautiful. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And, and, uh, and we start to see color this time of year also in plants. Yeah. You know, this is the time of year when that green pigment chlorophyll starts to break down. Right. The, and then the these... photo period is, is decreasing. The temperature is decreasing. And right. all, all these secondary pigments uh, become, become visible. Yeah. So you got the, the chlorophylls that are in the, the chloroplasts, but in those chloroplasts, you got all these other antenna pigments or accessory pigments that are carotenoids. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the same pigments that are in lizards. Yeah. And, um, they're the oranges and yellows. Xanthophils. And xanthophils. And, uh, so yeah, same, remember xanthophore in the lizard, xanthophils in plants. And so all of these colors start to pop out. They're always there. But when, like you just said, the chlorophyll. The mood uh, of the sugar maple has darkened. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Or like height. The, yeah, the chlorophylls <laughs> fade away. And the, before the chlorophylls were so dominant that it sort of overwhelmed all those other colors. So when they degrade, then those other colors are evident and then yeah. you get the beautiful autumn, autumn colors. I love it. I love this time of year. I love, I love the aspens. Um, every once in a while, you'll see one. We don't have as many, we don't have as many broadleafed uh, trees that show us pigment here in our part of the world. Mostly in town. Yeah. Go the, out. the rose well, family helps us out a lot. All those yeah. shrubs. Um, but the aspens, um, that nice yellow, and every once in a while, a little bit of orange. And you got see. the one conifer that helps, it changes. That's right. That, that large, the tamarack is deciduous and turns nice, beautiful yellow in the fall. Yeah. But most of the evergreens are evergreen. So how big was this um, agama? Is, are they see. iguana type? Or are they small? Well, you know, agama is in the family. Agamidae and the agamidae are... are are sort of like the Iguanidae in the old world. Okay. They sort of are a sister family. I'm not saying evolutionarily sister, but they they have a similar build. Yeah. Yeah. And were there many of that the, species the, or many, yeah. were there many species of that? Is that a genus or a family? Or? That was the one lizard I saw. <laughs> I didn't see, okay. I don't, I don't recall seeing any other lizard, the redheaded Agama. And it was about, of a foot long, maybe a little more, and pretty. It was great to hold it. Oh, I bet that's fabulous. And, um, I caught a, I caught a little one too, a juvenile, which didn't have the bright colors. It was much more camouflaged. So, is there a? And so you're you're alluding to this earlier, talking about um, um, well, this idea of sexual dimorphism. Often, a male of a species, at least in birds, very very colorful, uh, very kind of uh, charismatic, um, flamboyant, if you will, in its its behavior, but also its color. Is that the same? Is that is that the case also for for many lizards? Boy, I'm trying to think. There is sexual dimorphism in lizards, but not as not pronounced. as extreme. Okay, um, that's pronounced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. neat. Some some species it is pronounced, but in others, like even skinks, you'll male and female will be pretty similar, but 
Um, often the male will get uh, orange coloration around the head and we'll have, uh, like in the fence lizards, you'll have a brighter blue, uh, just more vivid markings in the male. Mm -hmm. But often the female will have some of those markings, just not as pronounced. Gotcha. Very good. Well, it's a, it's a colorful time of year. I love that. When I'm teaching my physical science students, it's just fun to explore that idea of, of chemical or pigment color and then structural color, uh, color yeah. as well. Uh, mm -hmm. We've been blessed richly um, with so many different um, ways to, to see color and uh, a wide variety of creatures that display different types of color. Yeah. It's been fun chatting with you, Gordon. Yeah. We'll see you next time. All right. See you next time. <laughs>